G'day, it's Phil here. Marshall McLuhan, the great Canadian thinker, used to talk about the notion that the medium is the message. What if the message is the medium? What if it's all one thing? What if we look at the whole of a person and the way in which they think of themselves and express that inner drive from the inside out as a way in which they might be able to take their consideration of their people, their place, their planet, conceive of it with purpose and put that into practice in the whole of their being. What if they might want someone to go on that journey with them? What if that person might be John Yo? John Yo is the licensee for TEDx Melbourne. He's an executive coach. He's a remarkable and interesting person. And over this special series of The Game Changers, where we're looking at a life of purpose, I've got the great privilege to get to know John and to share him with you, our listeners. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our special series sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. EDAPT provides educators with an easier, more meaningful way to check in with each student and know them on a deeper level. Find out more at edapt.education forward slash game changers. That's edapt.education forward slash game changers. Let's go. Go, John. How are you? Hey, Phil. Good to meet you. Good to chat. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to chat. Um, do you know, when, when we, 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 we had a brief conversation um, a wee while back thinking about what we were going to talk about over the duration of, of this series, and we decided to follow that sort of thing about the, the, the yesterday and the today and the tomorrow of John Yo. So I wonder whether we might frame today's conversation around the yesterday. You know, when, when Adriano and I talk with folk, we like to think of, of a whole bunch of different questions, but we always ask, what's the story? What's the story? Tell us how you got to where you got to today. So we, we, we've got some time. We've got half an hour or so that we can explore all of that because I think it's really interesting to think about where a person is and the story to get them there and the factors that play in and around that. So where, where does the John Yeo story begin? Oh, my goodness. That's, that's a... That's quite a profound one. It depends whether you even begun with me or even the beginnings of before I even existed. My dad moved here when I was 20, when he was 20, sorry. And the reason I mention that is the migrant background is actually a very significant cultural overlay to how we think, how we act, how we see the world compared to, quote unquote, the locals. And also how we're treated as, as, uh, as a migrant family back then. And I think that is really underappreciated in terms of the diversity and expression of diversity that we have within the modern world. But I didn't realise that back then. Uh, I just thought everything that I did was normal, quote unquote, uh, only to realise that it wasn't. Um, and so I had some cultural elements that influenced very much my early beginnings, but also some personal ones, which I didn't actually discover till much, much later. I am actually uh, very slightly dyslexic and I'm very slightly on the spectrum. And I didn't actually discover that and I'm almost 50 now, I didn't discover that till probably till I was in my mid-30s. And I suddenly, it was like a breath of fresh air. I suddenly understood why I did things, why I thought things, and why people reacted the way they did to the things I did. But I thought back then, thought I was a pretty typical kid. Um, I wasn't that good at school, but I was okay. I wasn't good at that great at sport, but I was okay. And I just kind of just plodded along as if, you know, took the path that everyone else took not really having any high expectations for myself. And so that was kind of the early foundations of what everyone thinks is normal. And I think everyone has their own normal. And that's what's really fascinating to me. What I discovered, I guess, from that is that people have their own version of normal. 
And just because my normal is not the same as your normal, suddenly everyone else is weird. And um, that knowing that there is a cultural aspect to that um, was an interesting one because I used to have these conversations with my dad who grew up in Malaysia under British occupation. The British said that we're the greatest empire to ever exist. And then the Chinese uh, civilization saying we're the greatest civilization to ever exist. And my dad said they both can't be right. So <laughs> we, we both sort of had this exploration. What is inherently human? What is inherently cultural or normal? And then what is that gap? And then how do we reconcile that? And that became the underpinnings of everything that I did. What causes someone to do something? And what causes someone to act in a certain way based on their own knowledge, experience, or background? And so as an analyst, and I'm an IT guy, I had to get unravel that. And that began a lifelong journey, which still continues today. That's interesting. So, I mean, you're an analyst coming from an IT background and a migrant family, and you're interested in the why. I'm an, I think I'm an analyst. I think that's probably technically what I do within within what it is that we do at a school for tomorrow um, more than anything else. That, that and I just talk a lot, but um, I'm an analyst, but I come from an historical and historian's background, but I also come from a migrant background too. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and if I can, can I take you back to the start of that story? I really want to explore the why of the migrant family. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in your understanding about what was what was important in your family, what was important in terms of what expectations were placed on you and what was sitting inside you about what you wanted to do along the way. Sure. I'd like to go back to first principles. So one of the things I think I now recognise literally today was that... Um, Everyone has an existence, but not everyone has acceptance, whether it's the acceptance of themselves or acceptance by the community. And when acceptance overwhelms existence, that's where people really seem to struggle. And I think the people who grow up here and have their own existence don't have to ever worry about acceptance in a migrant sense. They have maybe social norm acceptance or a couple other acceptances. But, you know, if you all can have a beer and talk about footy, which I don't, then you fit in quite nicely, but I didn't. And that became a real challenge for me, especially in my professional development, because I was, looked, I was literally being looked over, looked over for promotions because I wouldn't talk about the footy scores every Monday morning and talk about the footy every Friday afternoon. And I was working in an organisation where that literally consumed two out of the three hours of the Monday morning and probably the entire Friday afternoon. Do you know, I, I think I found it when I was younger, I think I found the fact that I loved cricket and I loved rugby and I loved music of all sorts, which included the music that other people were listening to. That's made my life just so much easier along the way. I think it probably helps me to feel accepted more. I'm not sure it necessarily helped me to feel as though I belonged. What's the difference between acceptance and belonging? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I was still stuck on your whole medium is the message thing about how profound that was. And now you've just gone and blurted another one between my ears. I think acceptance is the first step to belonging in its most simplest. If, if you're not accepted, you can't belong. Absolutely. I mean, our, our research on character development tells us that, that the agency in belonging lies with, with the people who hold the ground already. And if you want to sit on the ground, that piece of ground, inhabit that ground with them, they have to accept you in it. And there's nothing you can do to force them 
to accept you along the way. And in a world where we talk about justice and in a world where we talk about fairness and a world where we talk about inclusion, these are inescapable realities about our, our, our humanity. And that is that, that we get to choose who joins our tribe. And if we don't want you to join, you don't join. You know, it's just, if, if we look around the world today, and particularly look at the situation in Europe and the, and the way in which um, Europe and, and, and probably North America as well too, is trying to deal with um, migration and then you come to our own country and the way in which we grapple, you know, we really, really struggle with migration, don't we? I mean, there are some aspects of migration we do terribly well and then for those who don't come here the right way, well, we just put them in concentration camps, don't we? And that's, that's just iniquitous. So, so, so if acceptance is the first stage, what comes after that? Well, I think it's at that point both people have to extend the olive branch. There's a, there's a quote, and I, I'm trying to remember it about, you know, acceptance is, is it was about a, inviting someone to a dance party or something where it's, and I'll I have to dig it up because I can't remember, something along the lines of acceptance is being invited, um, belonging is being invited to dance or something along the lines. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it summarised it beautifully. Where, I, do, I, I do like that idea, though, of holding out an olive branch, a concession, like because yeah. you, you do you have to compromise, don't you? Because if if you hold the if if I hold this bit of dirt and I say this is mine and I allow you onto my bit of dirt, I have to concede that I can no longer do with this bit of dirt as I want. I have to share it with somebody else, and and there are all sorts of social norms that we have to build up um, around that. I, it's funny. I thought we were going to talk about the story of your life, but but we seem to be going right into the space oh. of what character is all about. And you know, John, it's maybe that's the, the the way the conversation will go i love that notion too of being invited to dance you know cultural fit is important isn't it and 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 we wrestle with that don't we when mm-hmm. when we go into the playground and our sandwiches aren't don't look like other people's sandwiches or they're not even sandwiches you know i can remember i can remember going back home and saying to mum please 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 can you cut the crusts off my sandwiches like the other boys? And can I have it on white bread? And can you wrap it in waxproof paper rather than glad wrap? And and because that's what all the cool kids did. And they had their Vegemite and cheese sandwiches on white. And there I was being sent with, you know, whatever amazing stuff mum was cooking from the night before. And I'm just thinking, oh, gee, I just want to fit in. And that's a bit like a dance, isn't it? Because when you dance with someone, you've got to learn to move and adjust and so on. And, and how did you learn to fit? Well, this was the challenge because as anyone who's slightly on the spectrum, they tend to be not very good at social cues and they tend not to be very aware of how people are emotionally reacting to whatever the situation happens to be. And so I actually had to sort of, again, the analyst in me had to find a way to reconcile that. And I was a little bit lucky in that, I went to school in the 90s and a lot of Hong Kong students were coming out to Australia. They were usually the well-to-do and so they were used to getting their own way. They were usually, because they're privately tutored, much more advanced than the local students and in many respects often corrected the teachers. So they weren't popular with the teachers and they weren't terribly popular with the local student body because they spoke quote-unquote their own language, which is Chinese. And look at me, I'm Asian. They all had glasses. I had glasses, I was automatically put in that bucket. So what was really interesting was I used to walk around school without my glasses, which is actually not a very, it's not a very safe idea for a start. 
but it's not a very good idea. But one of the positive outcomes was I had to find my friends who might be hundreds of metres away. And the only way I could tell who they were was the shape, their body shape, and the way they moved. And so what I noticed was that if their body movement had shifted from, say, calm to erratic, I knew their mental state had shifted. And I know this is a long answer, but very long story short, I learned to read body language very, very pragmatically. So you, what you learned to do was you learned to take the effective and make it cognitive. You learned yeah. to describe to yourself what it was and recognise by pattern. Great training for an analyst, hey? Great yeah. training for an analyst. It's beautiful. Okay, so there you are. You're one type of migrant in one yep. type of family and you've been pigeonholed in with the other types of migrants and the other types of family um, yep. by that cruel and compelling logic of the p- playground that you look kind of the same, so you must be the same because kids are brutally efficient in their judgments, aren't they? They just, it's a, it's a very, it's, a, it's, it's not a long considered study, is it? It's like, oh, you look like that. You must be one of them. Over you go. And we're going to leave you there. Um, I'm interested in what drives migrant families and how they make the choices that they make, perhaps from your own family or perhaps from other families you, you grew up in. Were, were you more limited in your choices about what was expected of you? Uh, and if so, where did your family expect you to go and do? Yeah. I am extremely lucky. My father was contrarian by nature. So he, therefore he wasn't conformist by nature, which meant I didn't have your classic tiger parents like other Asian families. Um, I had some of the Asian strictness, but certainly not the tiger parents. So I, I consider myself lucky from that point of view. But in terms of migrants, my, my dad had come from, you know, he, he moved here pretty much just after the war. He was looking for new opportunities. He saw that where he was, there wasn't that type of scope. And in fact, the education system in Australia at the time, it still is, as you could argue, significantly better than where he came from. And so he came here as a student. And so that was his path there. But what was really interesting, and this is why it shaped me so uh, emphatically, was that he was a state-level swimmer, an incredibly successful swimmer without any coaching and because he loved swimming. He taught himself to swim by throwing himself in the ocean and grabbing the floating coconuts so he wouldn't sink. So he came to Australia, was never made welcome on an Australian beach. And so, uh, again, luck. Uh, He met a lady who said, look, I can give you access to a private beach and you won't get harassed. And he went, that's fine. But she said there were three conditions. And he said, well, what are they? She says, well, first one, it's it's a couple of hours from Melbourne. Okay. Uh, The second one was, it wasn't a very good swimming beach. In fact, it was quite rough. But if you're a good swimmer, then maybe that's not a problem. My dad said he'll take his chances. And uh, my dad said, what's the third thing? She says, you have to be lowered down by a rope. And um, <laughs> yeah, so it was over a cliff, basically. And that's why no one was there. Um, but he he accepted. The lady who gave him access to that beach was a lady called Grandma Bell. And that beach later became known as Bell's Beach. Yeah, Bell's Beach, of course. And um, so my father kind of had this resolution at that point that if someone who didn't know him from a long way away was willing to give him a chance to do what he loved then this he should not only accept it but but realize that this is there is a possibility for this nation despite all the negative things that he perceived around him and so uh in many respects that eternal australian spirit does have a place but it has some downsides and I guess the recognition and awareness of that 
is something that many Australians maybe might not be quite so aware of. Then and don't take that as a criticism. We do this all the time. Australians, uh, you know, people collect all the time. You know, Australians when they move to London all collect in their own group. You know, and they all hang around their own type, and they don't integrate that well. And that's when I was within London that I, that happened all the time. It's just what migrants do. Uh, oh, look, of, of of course it is. And 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 when you see, look, when you see people. When you see young folk come to this country, one of the things I always think is really sad is you watch the young folk from other countries come and hang out with other young folk from other countries at the hostels yeah. and in the backpacker areas. And you sit there and you go, okay, now come and mix more widely. But it's, it's, it's very human, isn't it? It's very human to seek like, you know, to seek familiarity, to, 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 to want to fit in in that way. Where did he go to school? What was school like for you? You said it was an ordinary sort of school existence. I'm not not convinced by that, but tell me again, please. I went to the local state school from a primary point of view, uh, and there was nothing, I was the only Asian kid, apart from my older brother. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was rather interesting. So I used to play soccer with the Greeks and Italians. Ironically, I'm a terrible soccer player. So it didn't, it didn't, I wasn't terrible, you know, it didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but at least they, they acknowledge the difference and the variance and we had conversation. And I, I, that still happens today, uh, unfortunately. Um, my son says that the, kid, the white kids won't play with him. That, that, that is an inherent thing in this, in this country. But, you know, despite that, it's still a great country. Um, so I, I then went into uh, a, a, this high school that I mentioned. Um, and uh, what was really interesting was I was struggling, and this is in year seven, I was struggling to come up with an essay type, uh, topic and the teacher said to me, oh, why don't you do the talk from an Asian point of view? Which kind of confounded me at the time because my mother brought me up more than my father, Asian father, very quiet. My mother brought me. My mother's side of the family have been here longer than his family. So I, I, I didn't know the Chinese way, quote unquote, because I didn't, first of all, I didn't know there was a difference. And second of all, we were so anglicized. I, don't, I never spoke Chinese at home. All I knew was when Chinese New Year was, and that was pretty much the extent of it. So it was rather bizarre kind of contrast in terms of what people project on you. And, I, and that was kind of, again, the normalcy thing that we're talking about before. It suddenly helps you realise what people think of you. That shapes you. Yeah, it's, it's, it, as I said, it's, it's interesting. You talk about the history of our country. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. And, you know, in my, I'm 52, and in my lifetime, you know, the first couple of years, we still had formally had the White Australia policy in effect in our country and I can remember growing up in the 70s and I guess we would have lived in the most interesting parts of Australia in terms of different mm-hmm. cultures and so it was a pretty boring place it really really was and, and you you look at the vibrancy of at least urban Australia and, and most of Australia is urban Australia and of course despite our love with the bush legend we've been an urban nation since the 1870s you know so we've been 150 years this country has had a tortured existence with the bush and the outback um, because we keep thinking that to be truly Australian you have to be something which less than 15% of us are which is rural you know from a, from a, from a rural or, or an outback sort of place so there's all, there's always an interesting sense of other in our country but if you look at how far this country has come in terms of embracing otherness and plurality and and thinking about uh, what it means to be human and how a place like ours can uh, accommodate different types of human beings. We've come an enormous way, and yet we still beat each other up about how far we have to go. Yeah, no question this is 
got to be one of the greatest countries in the world. I just wish it was a bit closer to other places. But um, maybe maybe our lack of proximity actually allows us to be what we are and, and who we are. Maybe it allows us to be less defensive and less aggressive. Uh, it allows us to um, to you know. I mean, look, I don't really. Yeah, you know, I, I talked to I talked to friends of mine in Canada. I love going to Canada. But when back in the day we were allowed to travel before this dreadful coronavirus thing occurred, I, and and Canadians would sit there and go, oh, "Australia is such a long way away." And you go, "No, it's not really. You just get on the plane and go to sleep, and you'll wake up in Australia, and it will be good because you'll enjoy it when you're there." I'm like, "Oh no, it's a long way away." Yeah. Um, we've sort of started to explore a little bit about. I guess the finding of your purpose, which is what I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to sort of dig around a little bit to mm-hmm. say, there's stuff that you do now, and I'm interested in in your formation as a person around where you found and how you found um, the drive that you have now, because you're a person who loves ideas. You're a person that loves to find the synergy and the energy and the confluence of humanity um you love to help people to think about who they are and where it goes um you've got significant commitment to philanthropy um both in individually and and collectively as well too do you remember when all of this starts i only have suspicions and one of them was i was into computers and the computers i think was well they didn't argue with you they always wanted to play they followed a very logical process um and they were fresh and new to me. Uh, this is, you know, the very first computer lab came, you know, while I was at school, in high school. And one of the things I noticed was I picked it up really quickly and I was able to share my knowledge very quickly and suddenly I was helpful and useful. And I think that was the beginnings, and my dad's a teacher, and I have a bit of a wanting to help and teach people sort of nature in me. And so suddenly I could do it through technology. And so two parts of that that I like about technology. One is great change, which means great adaption. The other thing is you can follow it in a very linear and progressive way. And the other thing is that um, it empowers and leverages people to do things that they couldn't do before. And so that began the shaping, I guess, in terms of my, I'm going to call it my little purpose or why, which was to empower people to reach their full potential. And then later on, I added, uh, encourage them to do the same for others because that's the exponential part. That's the bit where, the, where you really have significant value. And that became the remit. And so I was the classic student, uh, well, classic anyone. You go to school, you get a good job, you work really hard. And uh, at the end, at some point you win, whatever that win happens to be. It didn't really excite me terribly much because as I mentioned before, the introvert slash autistic slash dyslexic thing inhibited my ability to in- integrate with corporate society. So yeah, I, but, but you know, but you know, I don't think you can be a good analyst unless you're an outsider. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, I think it's, it's the blessing and the curse of the analyst. Yeah. Is yeah. The, the only way you can see what others don't see is if you're not one of them, because otherwise you, you just see the same. Yeah. Um, but, but it, it does mean that you tend to, wander around the periphery and you get invited in for a bit, but then you have to go home at the end of the night and they're still there and you're not, you know? And so that, that of itself is an interesting thing. I've, I've made the decision that we're changing tack in this conversation, these conversations we're going to have, because I, th- I think what we've actually ended up doing is we're falling into um, really the, 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 the grounding of character and the development of character through a life. 
Uh, we talk about character in three ways. Our listeners will know this. So we talk about the civic character of belonging, and we talk, uh, and that's fundamentally about civility and courtesy and respect. We talk about the performance character of of reaching your potential, and, and that's largely about persistence and purpose and reflection. Then we talk about the moral character of doing good and right things, and that's fundamentally about things like um, courage and integrity and, and, and honesty. I kind of think mm-hmm. we've done the we've done the civic character really really well in this conversation yeah. so far. I wonder whether we might just pause there and then come back next week and talk about the reaching of potential because you know you've and then the following week we might talk about then doing the same for others because I, I think without me meaning to you've set this construct up really really well and, and I'm does, does that work for you? Yeah, totally okay with that. Tremendous. Okay, okay. So thank you, John, and. Um, when we come back next week, we'll talk about we'll we'll take the life story a little bit further and um and and maybe talk about how you you moved into this world of helping people reach their potential. Great, sounds like a plan. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow. Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.